Uh, a very simple review of message one to bring everyone in to the, uh, the flow and the burden in these three messages. <coughs> Excuse me. The general subject is living for the fulfillment of God's purpose. And so the emphasis is not merely on knowing about God's purpose, but actually living for God's purpose. And we emphasized two crucial matters throughout that message. And the first of them is that through God's salvation in Christ, we were redeemed, brought back to God, and saved from a meaningless human life. The only genuine, meaningful human life is the life of a believer in Christ Jesus who is learning and experiencing living for the fulfillment of Christ. And this view of being redeemed and brought back to God's original creation for us, which was for us to contain him and express him and represent him for the fulfillment of his purpose. Then the second crucial matter is this, and it was emphasized, I believe, quite firmly and uh, confirmed uh, quite wonderfully in the sharing of the saints for almost half an hour after the meeting. And that is, yes, the goal of God's eternal purpose is to build up the church as the body of Christ, consummating in the new Jerusalem, the corporate bride and wife of the redeeming God. There's no doubt about this, that the corporate expression is the goal. But this corporate expression through the body is realized through the members of the body. And the point here is, and I speak uh, gently, but directly to each one of you, you have a portion of Christ that no one else has or ever will have. You are a particular member of the body. You have a portion, a portion and you have a function and no one can replace that. And we need to realize this from 1 Corinthians 12 that God has placed the members of the body in the body as he wills. But I want to emphasize this. You have a particular 
function and portion. It doesn't matter what your human background is, what your culture or race or nationality or kind of learning things like this. It's for all of us. And this makes your Christian life all the more meaningful because you realize you have a part in the fulfillment of God's eternal purpose. Now, with that brief review, we come to message two. And I'm really looking forward to this because of the burden that has been developing. Look at the subject, enjoying God and living for his purpose. And I would say in the beginning, we cannot, at least say, I'm learning, I cannot truly live for God's purpose uh, absolutely if I'm not enjoying God. It is the joy of God through Christ as the Spirit that enables us to live for his purpose. And so we will emphasize, especially in the first two sections of the outline, the matter of joy and rejoicing and being full of joy. And at a certain point, once we pass through point D under two, we will take quite a bit of time to read together and consider with the Lord some marvelous verses on joy. And no doubt in your reading through the New Testament again and again, you've read these verses. But I'm finding out, I'm rereading again and again, and I come to a verse and I thought, did I read this before? This is something fresh and new, and it just captures my attention. So let's come directly now to the outline. Point one, God, a man was created by God with a need for enjoyment and purpose. This is a human need. It has nothing to do with religion. It's a human need. And these two verses that I will read to you testify of this. So we have a Genesis 2, 8 and 9. And Jehovah, God, planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, Jehovah God caused to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, as well as the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
Well, we are utterly, totally familiar with this. But consider this. Jehovah planted a garden in Eden. And that little footnote says Eden, a Hebrew word meaning pleasure. Pleasure. When God created us, he created us with the need for enjoying God. This is a human need. Now, on this Saturday night, in the Bay Area where you are, in Orange County where I am, no doubt tens of thousands of people, especially younger ones, are on in their Saturday night arrangement with the things they enjoy, that they delight. And I don't have a, a judgmental attitude toward any of them. But they may not realize, but eventually they will. They're doing this because they have a need for joy. And sooner or later, especially all the believers, will come to realize the only real joy is the triune God himself. So this is a need. I want to emphasize this. There are certain aspects of religious Christianity that just suppresses joy. That everything is so serious and heavy and weighty and pressing people down and making them feel like utter failures. But one crucial and central matter of the ministry of the age through Brother Nee and Brother Lee, is enjoying Christ. That's one of the most familiar expressions. Enjoying Christ, enjoying God. So this is a need. And the Lord wants to meet this need by presenting himself as joy. But also... God created us for his purpose. So this puts enjoyment and purpose together. And I would emphasize maybe a number of times we'll see as we proceed that without being more and more filled with joy, we really cannot absolutely live for God's purpose. But I'm so happy about this verse, I'm going to mention it now, but we'll devote attention to it a little bit later. That marvelous part of the verse in Nehemiah, chapter 8, verse 10. The joy of Jehovah is your strength. Amazing. Oh, may the Lord just really open the heavens to show us what this is. But God knows fully well 
that when joy is lacking, our capacity to live for his purpose diminishes, even if we have the heart to do this, the longing to do it, and pray to do it. We need God as our joy in order to carry out God's purpose. Then the other verse is in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. And I'll read the verse. And also I feel to read the footnote in this verse. He has made everything beautiful in its own time. Also, he has put eternity in their heart. Yet so that man does not find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So God has put into the heart of every human being eternity, a longing for eternity. But it's kind of mysterious. This verse says that God, at this point, does not enable us to find out what God has done. But this footnote is very helpful. And the first sentence is a quotation from the Amplified Bible, uh, referring to um, this one word, eternity. A divinely implanted sense of a purpose working through the ages, which nothing under the sun but God alone can satisfy. So there is this yearning in every human being on the earth, no matter who they are or where they are. Then the footnote. God created man in his image and formed in him a spirit that man may receive and contain him. In addition, God put eternity, an aspiration for something eternal in man's heart so that man will seek God the eternal one. Hence, temporal things can never satisfy man. Only the eternal God, who is Christ, can satisfy the deep sense of purpose in man's heart. And there is a deep sense in the human heart. Only a tiny percentage are aware of it because so many other things are pressing this down. But I wonder what would happen, let's just say in the city of San Francisco, if tomorrow everyone living in San Francisco would just stop what they're doing turn off the computer and the phone and stop listening to any music and don't read anything 
and just sit quietly for 20 minutes. Probably they could not bear to do this because what would happen if anyone would just stop and rest is the sense from deep, deep within. I need God. I need purpose. I need meaning. It's been put in our heart. Now we go on to the second section. And that is God wants us to enjoy him and to live for his purpose. A God wants, not God demands. I am God. I require you to enjoy me. That would have the opposite effect. God wants us to enjoy him. So he created with our need for enjoyment. And now we're going to see that the triune God is a God of joy. We'll come to that in a moment. God wants us to enjoy him and to live for his purpose. So again, I'm emphasizing, in order to live for God's purpose, we need to enjoy God, the triune God. And look at point A, such a simple statement. The triune God is a God of joy. So I say again, this is not a training. Even our trainings are kind of, they're, they're excellent. And the faithfulness of the saints to participate is wonderful. But they're rather easygoing. I just wonder, as we're nearing the end and being prepared for spiritual warfare, the Lord may give us slightly or significantly a different kind of training, but that's up to him. But I will gently ask this question to you personally in your fellowship with the Lord, in your spiritual understanding. Is the triune God a God of joy to you? He's a God of joy. And he wants to be the God of joy to you. And uh, the Lord knows all the different kind of dispositions we have, all the different life experiences we've been having. And I just give you a very, very brief testimony with a kind of a negative beginning and a positive, it's not an end because I haven't reached the end, but of Recovering. When I was really quite young, like 20, I was a believer. And I knew I had the call from the Lord. But I came to the conclusion because of certain things. 
There is no such thing as joy. There can be truth. There can be sincerity. But joy. And anyone who claims to be joyful is just a shallow person. And then this, of course, this matched my disposition until the Lord in his shepherding and loving care brought me to the Lord's recovery, placed me under the ministry of the age, and opened the way to live in a church life where there is much enjoyment and to realize God is a God of joy. So he wants us to enjoy him. So I say again, that's not a requirement. He presents himself as the process and consummated triune God to be the God of joy to us. And maybe uh, this particular kind of thought or perspective on God uh, has never kind of been a matter in your life. It just hasn't come up. So this may be a, a beginning for so many of us. Others may have advanced a little. I'm still advancing along with the rest of you. To know God in this way. And then points B, C, and D develop this. As believers, we need to change our concept. Our concept of God. That, um, let's say we had, I would say, another kind of failure. In a relationship or just in our personal life, we have a failure. And have you ever been somewhat reluctant to come back to God because you think, well, I'm going to get disciplined. I'm going to get dealt with. God's going to judge me for this. And of course, God is righteous. But we have the powerful cleansing blood of Jesus, the Son of God. To wash away every sin. But actually. God knows why. We had the failure. He wants us to come back to him. To receive his love. And joy. That's what's in his heart. And he just is praying. The Lord is praying. We know from 1 John. The apostle, and he includes himself, no one can say he never sins. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to cleanse us from all our sins. And then at the beginning of chapter 2, we see that in the heavenlies, there is one observing our situation. He's our advocate sort of like a defense attorney. And as soon as we have a failure, 
as soon as we sin or disobey, he is advocating for us on the basis of his redemption. And then what happens, there is a sense that comes not only from our conscience, but comes from the triune God calling us back. Come back. Turn your heart to me. Simply tell me what happened. Confess. And everything will be washed away. And so we need to have a different concept of God basically being a judging God, a dealing God. So as believers, we need to change our concept. Focus on the enjoyment of God. Focus. This means this is the center of our spiritual observation. We are focused on this. When we endeavor to have a time with him at the beginning of the day, to the best of our ability, we need to focus on the enjoyment of God. And I believe the Lord will pray for us and minister into us so that we might even pray early in the morning as we're waking up. Thank you, Lord, for another day of enjoying God. Another day of the joyful God, the God of joy, the minister himself to us. And see that God's desire is to give himself to us to be our enjoyment. I just wonder, of course, this is impossible. The Lord Jesus, we will not see him until he comes back to the earth with his bridal army. But I believe if he were speaking to us and we were just a crowd that gathered around him to hear his teaching, he would say, I'm coming to you. I want to give myself to you to be your enjoyment. Will you let me do this right now? Just let me do it. Because all I have to do is make yourself available, open up. He really means this, to give himself to us. Not to give a thing, but to give himself to us, to be our enjoyment. And these verses from John, the word was with God, the word became flesh. And then what came through incarnation? Grace and reality. And grace is the triune God for our enjoyment and for our sufficiency. And it will make a big difference in your personal life with the Lord. To have this view, God's desire. These two words, right now, tonight, this desire is in God's heart. That's why we're having this meeting. That's why 
we have this outline and this message. We're not just learning about this. We all want to end this day with the realization. Oh, how I love God and believe in God more than ever before. His desire is to give himself to me for my enjoyment. And then we thank him. What a way to end the day before falling asleep. Thank you, Lord, for being my enjoyment today. Then point C, whenever we draw near to God, we realize, no, we need to realize that he presents himself to us for our enjoyment. We need to realize this. Then we won't be reluctant. We won't be afraid. We won't hesitate. We will realize the blood of Jesus has opened the way for us to come back to God. And we need to realize when we come drawn near to him, he will present himself to us for our enjoyment. Thus, we should come to him with the thought of enjoying him. And I don't know uh, what is your experience about this, but just as your brother, I'm just telling with you, telling to you, I'm still learning this. To have this just woven into my being whenever I come to him, to have the thought of enjoying him. Instead of having the thought, I have to deal with this and that, and I had this failure. Look where I am after 55 years in the Lord's recovery and so slow. The Lord wants that to just vanish, disappear. He wants us to come to him with this thought. It's important with our thought because the mind directs the emotion and the will, if our concept, if our thought is God is going to deal with me and judge me, and then that is going to have quite an effect. And we may have our morning revival somewhat at a distance. But if this thought is changed and we have the thought of enjoying him, there will be quite a quite a change in our personal life with him. And let's suppose if everyone in the church in Berkeley every day can come to the Lord with this concept. God is the God of joy and he wants me to enjoy him. So I'm coming so that he may give himself to me for enjoying him, and now I'm coming in. What do you think would happen, let's just say by the end of this year, if everyone in Berkeley prayed this simple prayer and let God be his enjoyment for the next 28 days, four weeks? What would it be like when we all come together 
with more joy. Why, why don't we? Why don't we do it? Why don't we do it? Because of our own need, but even more, why don't we all do it for the church? That I want to experience the God of joy and come to him with the thought of enjoying him. Not just that I would be happy, but I want all the dear brothers and sisters in my locality to be happy. And I want the meetings of the church to be full of the God of joy. Then point D, the secret to the Christian life is how much we enjoy God. Of course, I learned this from Brother Lee. So I'd put this word here, the secret. Now, again, if this were the training and I asked everyone, okay, wherever you're sitting, you know, there's not a test. This is just a learning experience. I'm going to give you a question and just write an answer for yourself. And that is, what is the secret of a Christian life? What is the secret? So a secret means there's, there's something hidden. There's something special. And I believe all of us, including me, we would kind of guess. But I'm so glad that someone who had gone before us to open the way, our brother, brothers Nee and Lee, they could say, no, no, that's not the secret. The secret to the Christian life is how much we enjoy God. And so why don't we simply pray every day? I want to enjoy what I want to enjoy God more than ever before. And you know what this development, you know how long it's going to last? It'll never last. It'll be greater in the coming age, in the kingdom. Oh, the joy that will be there at the wedding feast. And then in the new heaven and the new earth, when all the believers have been perfected and reached maturity, then we will be living all together as this corporate counterpart to the redeeming God. And the fresh enjoyment will never end. I don't know if we'll have any time consciousness on the new heaven and the new earth, but maybe when you're walking together, someone and just say, wow, we have been here for 17 billion years and everything is fresh and new because our dear triune God is a God of joy and it's never going to end and there'll be no repetitions. Now, here I want to turn to a series of verses and read them with care and comment some as the Spirit leads. And there are, there's just uh, several dozen verses on this, but this is not 
a kind of study. It's a kind of pursuing the Lord. And so I begin with Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but I'm quite familiar with this verse for many years. But you know what happened? For me, the kingdom of God was righteousness and peace. I have to not confess this, but just acknowledge this. I stopped at peace. Joy in the Holy Spirit. This is the strongest indication, dear ones, that we're living in the reality of the kingdom of God right here and right now because we have the joy of the Spirit. Our conscience is clear, so we have Christ is our righteousness. And now we're at peace. Peace with God and at peace with one another. But now we have joy in the Holy Spirit. I don't know how much the Lord will lead tonight for something I'll just mention now. But we'll come to verses that speak of the Lord's joy. We'll read the verses about his joy. But consider, he was the man of sorrows. No one on this earth in any way come close to how he suffered in those 33 and a half years. But somehow, in the midst of that suffering, he had joy because God is joy. So now we come to Romans chapter 15, uh, verse 18. Oh, no, that's not, oh, no, it's um, just, no, verse 13, sorry. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope in the power of the Holy Spirit. So here we have a certain description of God, the God of hope. And I believe many of us are gradually realizing that we are a people of faith. But we also need hope especially when we're discouraged in this one difficult situation after another, because hope is related to the future. And the Lord wants us to be filled with hope, to have a positive view of our personal future and the future of the Lord's recovery. And so Paul said, the God of hope, fill you with all joy. 
all joy. So what is that? Not just some joy, all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope in the power of the Holy Spirit. So right now, I mean, at this very moment, God wants to fill you and me with all joy. We don't have to wait until my speaking part is done. We don't have to wait until the meeting's over. Right now, our God wants to do this. And then now we go to Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. And this is quite uh, encouraging. Where Paul had been talking about the works of the flesh. And then in verse 22, he says, the fruit of the spirit. The first fruit is love. What's the second? Joy. And so this indicates that we're not trying to conjure up joy in our emotion. We try to make ourselves happy. But the indwelling spirit is bearing fruit. The issue of the spirit flowing in us. The first effect is love. Then the second is joy. And in our part, we simply need to open to the indwelling spirit. And let him be all this. And what Paul lists here is not complete, but it's worthwhile to go on reading just for our enlightenment. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. But it comes from the Spirit. And I just refer to 1 Thessalonians 1.6. And in that verse, Paul speaks of the joy of the Holy Spirit. The joy of the Holy Spirit. And then for a moment, I turn backward to Acts chapter 13. And I hope you're just making note of these verses. Acts 15, uh, 13, sorry, 13, Acts 13, verse 52. I'm getting there. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is when they're being persecuted. And they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And now we go on to 1 Peter 
chapter 1, verse 8. And the word whom refers to Jesus Christ in verse 7. Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Isn't this wonderful? Don't you love the Lord right now? You do. But we've never seen him. Into whom, though not seeing him at present, yet believing, you exult with joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. And Paul is writing this to a suffering people all over the earth. And he himself was suffering. I should say Paul, it was Peter. Peter. And he says this, exult with joy. And I thought, I said to myself, Ron, I think you better look up the definition of exult. And these are two that I wrote down. Uh, exult. The verb, feel or show triumphant elation or jubilation. We're showing, we feel or show something triumphant, a victory. A triumphant elation that is great enjoyment and jubilation full of joy. And the second one, to exalt is to express great pleasure or happiness, especially at someone else's defeat or failure. And when I read this, I said, wow, we can express great pleasure or happiness especially at the defeat of the devil. The Lord Jesus has destroyed him, has defeated him, and now we can exult with joy. And then a little footnote on joy, footnote four, because it talks about Joy that is unspeakable. It's so much joy, we can hardly express it with words. We can hardly explain what's happening. I think we've all had at least a touch of that. The joy is filling to such an extent, it's just unspeakable. If someone sees how joyful you are, they're wondering what's going on, you can't say much. You can just say, praise the Lord. I mean, inwardly, I'm just dancing in the spirit like David did before the ark in a certain way. And this joy is full of glory. And this is the footnote. Joy full of glory is joy immersed in glory. Hence, joy that is full 
<coughs> joy that is full of the Lord express because glory is the expression of God with his brightly shining. And now the joy is filled with glory. So this means that the more we enjoy the Lord, the more he's expressed through us. And just what would happen? It could be oh, on a Saturday evening or some other time, we're just having a dinner together before we have a kind of meeting, especially a gospel meeting. And so many people are there and the whole atmosphere is full of joy. And everyone has a joyful countenance. And then the meeting, the singing, the praying, the speaking, the testifying is all joyful. And in this joy is the glory of God. God is expressed. These people will see the corporate expression of God in Sacramento or any other place. Do you think this is an idealistic thing? I don't think so. This is quite normal if the God of joy has his way with us. And now we come to John. John 15, and then we'll read from two other chapters, then we'll have one other verse. Okay, I'm getting there. Okay. I want to read verse 11, but I'd rather, not rather, but before that, I would like to read Verses 8, 9, and 10. And this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so you will become my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Isn't that a fresh expression? Abide in my love. Spend the whole day abiding in the Lord's love. If you keep my commandments, these are not the Ten Commandments. If you read the footnote, they are, this is the inner speaking of the Lord about what he wants you to do, what he wants you to say. How he wants to release a prayer. It's not the Ten Commandments here. That's a misunderstanding. It's the inner speaking of the Lord. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So if we really love him, and let's just say, um, oh, in 25 minutes from now, because I'm going to honor the clock, and it's half an hour time to testify. And the Lord within you is just prompting you 
and you may be a little a little shy. That's your kind of makeup. But he's gently but continuously uh, urging you. Put yourself into the chat. And so you'll be in the line. And then a brother who is serving in this way will just call your name. And you will just keep this commandment. Even as I kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. And now we come to verse 11. These things, that is abiding in him, abiding in the vine, abiding in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. The Lord knows for years I've been seeking to really experience and understand this verse. Now I realize I can't do it alone in my personal seeking. It has to be with you, the brothers and sisters, together. Because he's speaking corporately. You, it's not a singular, it's corporate. That my joy, I wonder, what is his joy? Why don't we ask him, but what is your joy? You want your joy to be in me. What is it? Please make it real to me. And that your joy may be made full. I believe the Lord is praying for this right now. What he said 2,000 years ago. He's looking for this to be fulfilled. And so we need to learn to abide in him, especially to abide in his love. And then as a result, the Lord will make his joy will be in us. I honestly can't say much about his joy in us. I'm really a learner. Okay, not in graduate spiritual learning. I mean, maybe way, way back. But I'm not ashamed of that. I'd rather learn now than learn in the next age. And that your joy may be made full. I just wonder what would happen at a Lord's Day morning meeting for the Lord's table. And many of the saints come full of joy. Just please allow me to say this. I think we will do something more than just sing one hymn after another and pray with the lines of the hymn. We will just be overflowing with joy. Then what a worship of the Father would issue from that. And now another verse from John. There's two verses from chapter 16. And uh, verse 22 and 24. Therefore, 
you also now have sorrow. But I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice. And no one takes your joy away from you. So they were in sorrow because they knew he was leaving them. And we know what they went through and what Christ went through. But then he said, I will see you again. So the Lord would like to see you again. Inwardly in your personal life with him. And your heart will rejoice. Your heart. You're not trying again stir it up. Just effortlessly, spontaneously. Your heart is rejoicing. And you realize no one takes the joy away. This is the Lord's word. Isn't it accurate to say this is something we all need to experience? Isn't this something fresh that we've read? And it's just on my heart in a weighty yet positive way that we would all develop this matter together all over the earth. That there would be a joy unspeakable, full of glory. In verse 24, until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. You hear he's speaking about praying in his name. And that could be an entire conference about praying in the Lord's name. Ask and you shall receive that your joy may be made full. Now, haven't you experienced some joy when a prayer that you offered was answered? Wasn't there just some happiness, some joy? But what would happen if in the all the prayer meetings and vital groups or just vital companions in three and four praying together in an uplifted way, praying in the Lord's name. And they ask and receive. And then they realize our joy is made full. I just would gently encourage you. Let's pray for these verses to become our reality personally and corporately. And then John 17, verse 13. Again, he's praying to the Father. But now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world. That they may have my joy made full in themselves. He prayed for this to the Father. And this prayer includes all the believers from the apostles' time until the end of this age, including all of us, 
he prayed that they may have the Lord's joy made full in themselves. Then why not join him in praying, Lord, we pray personally that your joy would fill me. We need to pray personally. Then spontaneously, we just say, Lord, I pray for that all the saints in my locality, that your joy would be made full in them. And then effortlessly, you're praying, Lord, I'm praying for everyone in the Bay Area, Northern California. And before long, I mean like before 30 or 45 seconds, your prayers expanded. Lord, may all the saints in your recovery and all the churches all over the earth have your joy made full in them. Lord, do this in everyone. And then, as I mentioned, Nehemiah 8.10, and uh, depending on the translation, many say the joy of the Lord is your strength, but in the recovery version, it's more accurate. The joy of Jehovah is your strength. And once again, and this verse is capturing my attention, but I'm just in an early stage of learning. But the joy of the triune God is our strength. It is joy that strengthens us. I really believe, based upon many portions of the New Testament, that when the Lord comes with his bridal army, as with him, and they've already had the wedding feast, they've such indescribable joy, and now they need strength and power for the battle at Armageddon, it will be joy. We're coming with the triumphant Christ. We are exalting. And you read Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2. The Lord will destroy the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth, with the word. And so we all need to be strengthened, especially as this age is reaching the end. And I just don't feel I should try to say something beyond that I presently experience and understand. But I just love this verse. The joy of Jehovah is your strength. It's not strong saints are happy. It's that happy saints are strong. And it's the joy, not that we stir up, it's the joy of God himself, the God of joy. Well, there's just about 15 minutes left. I'll go through the rest of the outline, mainly reading this. It speaks for itself. 
but it's worthwhile. But may I ask you, isn't this quite a precious matter? This was the Lord's leading. This was his burden on enjoying God, the God of joy, the triune God. His joy is filling us up, and our joy will be made full. Point three, the book of Ephesians was written from the perspective of God's good pleasure, the desire of his heart. God needs pleasure. And pleasure is according to his will. He created us to need pleasure because the level of any kind of life needs pleasure. You had a dog, you'll find out they need certain happy things. They come with a a lease in their mouth, like I mentioned last night, or a little ball in their mouth. They want to play. Well, human beings have a higher life. We have the greater need for pleasure. And God, of course, has the highest life of all. There's desire in his heart. Don't we want to contribute to fulfilling the desire of God's heart? He has opened his heart to us to make it known. God needs pleasure, and this pleasure is according to his will. So only those who do his will can bring him pleasure. God's good pleasure is what makes him happy. It is what he likes, what pleases him. Well, we're learning what makes him happy, but I believe we're learning tonight one thing that makes makes him happy is joyful believers to see us happy and joyful personally and corporately. This makes him happy. God's good pleasure has been purposed by God in himself. This means that God himself is the source and sphere of his eternal purpose. So God's eternal purpose is intrinsically related to the desire of his heart. So on our side, the more joy we have, the more we can live for the fulfillment of God's purpose. And now from God's side, the more we are living for the fulfillment of his purpose with joy, he has the pleasure, the pleasure in his heart, the desire of his heart fulfilled. How indescribably happy I hope to find out at the time with all of you when the bride and bridegroom meet. What kind of joy is that going to be? The most joyful event in the history of the universe when the bride and bridegroom meet. Oh, we don't want to miss that meeting. And we want to be prepared by living a joyful life for the fulfillment of God's purpose. See, the church is according to the good pleasure of God's will, the desire of God's heart. And so now it's the church 
not just the universal church, the church where you are. is according to the good pleasure of God's heart, of God's will, the desire of his heart. This is some, perhaps a new perspective about the church life. What are we, this expands what we're doing here, what we're meeting for, what our serving, what our, what our gospel preaching what our shepherding will bring joy to the Lord's heart is that we are fulfilling God's will, the desire of his heart. And now he sees this joy lived out in the practicalities of the church life. And so we will realize that it's not just a believer who is being produced as an overcomer brings him joy. We need to pray that all the churches on the earth will bring joy to the God of joy. There should be this back and forth joy, this mutuality of joy. He is our joy, and now we're going to become his joy corporately and that's just by ordinary human beings and normal believers brothers and sisters in a local church somewhere but now things are being refreshed and new because we're touching something fresh and new and that is having a church life according to the good pleasure of God's will. And then we tell the Lord, I love you. I love you, Lord, more than ever before. And Lord, I want my life, my journey on the earth to contribute to satisfying the desire of your heart. I believe this would touch him. This would motivate us. Then D, God's good pleasure is related to his heart concerning us. When he thinks about us as the object of his dispensing, he is happy. Yeah, doing this again from Brother Lee. So God's good pleasure is related to his heart, his heart concerning us. Let me put it this way, his heart concerning you. When you are joyful because you have the Lord's joy in you and the Lord looks upon you, he's happy. And I have to admit, I'm not going to be introspective. This is just a fact. I believe too often I've made him unhappy. Not angry, but unhappy. Not disappointed, not that, not discouraged, just not happy. But maybe at least a little bit in recent months and learning, I want you to be happy. You want me, you want all of us to be happy. 
Now we want to reciprocate. We want to bring joy to you. We want to be worshiping a happy God. Oh, how wonderful to say, praise the happy God from the God-made happy people in the churches on the earth. And then the last brief section, and there'll be plenty of time, maybe 35 minutes, and I'm going to be here with an open ear to drink of your spirit as you flow out minute by minute. God's eternal purpose is to dispense himself into his chosen people, to make them the same as he is in life and nature, but not in the Godhead, for his enlarged and expanded expression. God's intention in his creation of all things, including man, was that man would be mingled with God to produce the church as the body of Christ to consummate the new Jerusalem for his glorious expression. Now we're at the high peak, seeing what this joyful living will result in. B, God's eternal purpose, according to the desire of his heart, is to have the church to be the organic body of Christ for the manifestation of his multivarious wisdom. He will manifest his wisdom to the whole earth. Look what my wisdom has accomplished on the earth. The desire of my heart to have the church, the organic body of Christ, is taking place on the earth. Enemy, look at this. You still can have access until he's cast down to the earth, according to Revelation 12. Remember what he said? Look at Job on the earth. The time will come and say, look in the Bay Area. Look in New York City. Look in Tokyo. Look in Shanghai. Look in London. Look in South Africa. What do you see? He'll be quiet. I see my organic body being built up. You know what this means? My bride is making herself ready. You know what that means? Your days are numbered. And I'm coming with my bride to the earth, and you're going to be cast into the abyss, and the kingdom of God, the age of the kingdom, will begin. See, the church as the body of Christ is a unique means by God to fulfill his purpose and settle all his problems, meaning with the enemy. The church is for the expression, the glory of God the Father in the divine sonship with the Father's life and nature. The church is God's greatest boast in making known to the angelic rulers, especially the evil powers in the air, and authorities, his multifarious wisdom for the shame and defeat of his enemy to bring in his kingdom. 
our enjoying the Lord and living for his purpose is going to result in this, the enemy will be put to shame. And maybe the Lord will say to his wife, now we're dealing with him. I want you, I, I obtained the victory, but I want you to apply it. He's the one who tried to destroy you. I'm the one who redeemed you and even deified you to make me my counterpart. Now on my behalf, you speak to him. What a shame that a corporate woman, a God-man woman will say, enemy, you are bound. We cast you into the abyss. The earth is the Lord's. Then the very last sentence. The church is for the heading up of all things in Christ through the working of himself into us as life and light. This is enjoying God and living for his purpose. Amen and amen.